I have started and exited multiple companies. I am an avid investor in early stage companies. I advise some of the hottest startups and have worked with many of the top tech companies across numerous industries. I'm a software developer by trade, but I also have an MBA from Duke University. I seek out companies who defy conventional wisdom to drive innovation in any industry. And in this podcast, I interview the founders of those companies for you. Hello, folks. I'm joined today by Will Brawley, one of the partners at Schedulefly. I met him through a mutual friend recently, and I'm really looking forward to chatting with him today. Uh, Will, thanks so much for joining me this evening. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the whistle pig. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be broadening your horizons. I understand you're more of a bourbon drinker, but I talked you into a ride tonight. Rise, so thank yeah, you. it's good. I like it. I like it, man. <laughs> awesome. So first off, uh, please tell the listeners what Schedulefly does. Mm-hmm. So we... I have a restaurant employee scheduling software Mm -hmm. and we serve independent restaurants, no chains. So we have sort of a niche focus, but basically it's it taking, you know, most restaurants would use Excel or pencil and paper to create the weekly schedule, which changes often creates Mm -hmm. all these problems. And we just make it, you know, put it online web-based. Awesome. So when, when you say not a chain, I recently had on the podcast, um, Britton McCorkle, the one, the founder of Bottle Cap Group, is that there? Obviously, fifteen, sixteen restaurants, but not a not a major chain. When you say not a chain, you mean literally like a single owner operator, or do you have some of those smaller chains? I feel like we may have had Bottle Cap at one time, but I'm not sure. I I could look it up. I mean, we we um, it's it's one location. It's five, ten, fifteen, probably the. I mean, I think our largest customer might have twenty, but that's very rare. By and large, the average would have probably two or three locations. Interesting. And and how did the idea for schedule fly come about? So we have five people in the business and three of us are our partners. Um, Tyler Rollman and Wes Aiken and I are the Mm -hmm. partners in the business. Wes has written every line of code that we have for the software. Um, He used to create the schedule at a restaurant in Wilmington, North Carolina called the bridge tender. Okay. And you know, this was 20 years ago. And it was a big pain. And, you know, basically the way this works is like he, he's in charge of schedule. So people are writing, you know, can I not work Tuesday night or whatever on these like backs of tickets and receipts. And he, he sits in his apartment every Sunday and spends like two <laughs> hours trying to piece together. This is that bridge tender. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he's trying to figure out how to make this schedule for the week. And he finally gets it figured out. And then he goes and he walks in and he posts it on the court board in the back. And all of a sudden people are coming up and checking their schedule. Going, oh, I can't work then. What? So yeah. now all of a sudden this thing's changing rapidly and it's, it's very inefficient. It's phone calls. It's, you know, it's just a lot of manual stuff. And so he had the idea to just make this real simple and put it online. So, so he was working at Bridge Tender. What, what did you say his job was there? Was he, he, was, he, was a, he was a server, but okay. he also, you know, he, he got to the point where he was responsible for creating the schedule. And it was a big pain for him. And this was, you know, God, seven or eight, nine, ten years before we, we mm-hmm. got going with Schedule Fly. Wes, Tyler, and I, and then the other two guys that work with us, Charles and Hank, who are, I mean, we're all, you know, equally important to the team. 
uh, we all worked together at a previous business that was sold in 2007. Immediately, Wes and Tyler left uh, to, Wes stuck around for a little while, Tyler left, and, and but, but Wes had written this software, had it on a server in his closet in his house, and he had a couple of restaurants in Raleigh uh, where he was living at the time that he were kind of using it for free. Okay. And Tyler came to him one day and said, you know, this is kind of like right when he was about to leave first research we had sold, and he's like, dude, this is, I think we could make a business out of this. Yeah. And I said, all right, let's do it. And so that was that was how it started. So Wes works at the restaurant but knew how to program? Yeah, he worked at the restaurant, like in college. I mean, that's where yeah. he learned okay. how to code. Yeah. Got it. So he's learning how to program at school, and he says, hey, why don't I build something to solve yeah, the problem? Yeah, he didn't really, like, he didn't really build it to be a business. He built it just to help some friends. You know, he didn't really know, I think, what he was going to do. He thought maybe, but he didn't really know. And then yeah. Tyler kind of approached him and said, you know, this there's a good market for this. Do you want to do this? And, cool. And that was, that was. And what was Tyler's background? <laughs> So Tyler is uh, Tyler is the brains of the operation. Uh, he went to Harvard, and uh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> yeah, he got his MBA out of Anderson. Okay. Uh, Tyler could do whatever he wanted. Like he, he and he was a um, all Ivy League basketball player at Harvard. He was captain of the team. He okay. played professionally over in Europe for a while. Very cool. He, you know, he started out in investment banking and realized, like, you know, this is not the kind of life I want to live. I don't want these hours. I don't want to be, you know, mm-hmm. just being put through hell all the time. So, uh, so he gets into the restaurant business. Yeah. Well, I mean, we got him <laughs> at first research uh, and, and it was really lucky. He came over to first research and he was a really big part of sort of helping us scale that business and turn it into a business. that was a, a good acquisition target. And mm-hmm. sure enough, DNB called not, you know, a few years after he wow. got there. And so let's talk about first research real quick. What, it, what is, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times. What, what was first research? So first research was, uh, it's where we all got to know each other. But it was a business that sold, uh, we created and sold industry profiles for call preparation, primarily for commercial bankers. And then we, mm-hmm. Tyler basically, Tyler and some other folks, West included, helped us expand out to different industries. But it was basically like cliff notes for call preparation. So okay. let's say you're calling on customers in multiple industries, right? And you're not an expert in their industry, but you're going to sit in front of a CFO or a CEO or some C-level executive and try to sell them. And convince you know, them that you can sell their business you, for the highest bit to the well, highest. Yeah, order. but yeah. I mean, actually, it was just for commercial bankers. It was like, you know, we can help you grow your business. So you're talking about like, you know, businesses that were up to 50 or $100 million. But wow. commercial bankers are calling on all these different industries. It's really hard to have any sort of expertise. But if you had enough information to know these are the questions I need to ask. These are issues impacting the industry. Yep. You look smart and you can probably say, okay, well, if this is an issue in your industry, then we can probably help you because we provide this type of service. Very cool. And so that's what first research was. And did we, you um, Wes or Tyler start that or you guys all just work there together? We worked there together. So I was, it, which is why I stuck around after we mm-hmm. sold it. I was one of the first three there. Um, I was the third person there, third person at schedule fly. Okay. Uh, so I was early on first year there, a shareholder in that business. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we had gotten from like the three of us to about 40 employees and we were, wow. we were about wow. 9 million in revenue when we sold it mm-hmm. to Dun and Bradstreet. And so, you know, I had some incentive to stick around for a year after that sure. uh, for earnout purposes, so I did. <laughs> and then I'm surprised I it was only for one year. It's a- well, I, I stayed until the the the, the day I earnout was up. That was my last day. <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned that that uh, Wes is showing you and Tyler the software, and Tyler says, "Wow, this could be could be a business." How long after the the sale to DNB did that happen? 
I mean, Tyler was around as long. I don't remember specifically, but he was probably around two or three months. It wasn't long. Okay. Because I think we sold, I mean, Schedule Fly was founded April or May of 2007. I think we sold in March. So he kind of did what he needed to do to clear his desk off, and he was gone. And then Tyler was, Wes was still working there. Um, He was a CTO and um, really important and critical to the transition of that Mm -hmm. business. And Tyler basically sat down and started figuring out like, how do we get people to know that we exist? And mm-hmm. how do we get people? I mean, just, you know, how do we inform people that we exist? How do we get them to start using it? What do we charge them for it? What's our pricing model? All this kind of stuff. He was kind of tinkering around with that and working on that, trying mm-hmm. to figure all this stuff out. Tyler actually was a funny story early on, very early on. He sat down and over the course of like 48 hours, he emailed individually every one of open tables customers because they have like a page for each customer. Okay. And it would have like a contact email. It might be info at abcrestaurant.com. It might be the chef's email, whatever it was, they had a contact. So he went and literally emailed them to the point he was doing so many at a time, like 18 hour days for a couple of days after the first day or day and a half bell South at the time, which was the, his internet (laughs) provider literally cut him off for oh, being wow. a, a mass spammer. And he had to call them and convince them like, you know, what he was doing and why he was doing it yeah. and, and so forth. But that's how we got like our first, I don't know, like 15 or 20. So, so those, for, you mentioned that there were two customers that were for free on it. Was that, were those just people Tyler knew and said, Hey, people why don't that you West try knew. Or yeah. people West knew. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yep. And, um, does Tyler convince him to start charging those folks or, the, the, those yeah, I mean, you know, those guys, I don't, you know, they figured out whatever the price, I mean, honestly, we've literally have not changed our pricing in 12 years. Wow. We, wow. we, we used to like, now it's like, you know, the smallest price here is 30 bucks a month and it goes up to 60 and then, you know, on from there. But our price grid is 30, 40, 50 or 60 bucks a month based on how many staff you have. Okay. The only change we made is I got so in, like we had, it was like twenty nine ninety five a month, thirty nine ninety five a month. And after like a year or so, I was like, I can't, we can't do this. That's like a retail price. Like, <laughs> let's just knock it up to 30, 40. And that's what we did. And it's never changed okay. ever since then. Interesting. We don't like friction. Like every, we've tried to make this business really, really simple. Very simple software, very simple business model. There's no setup fee. There's no cancellation fee. There's no contracts. It's mm-hmm. just everything. Friction is just, we don't want to deal with it. It's why, it, and it's why we're only able, you know, it's why we're able to do this with only five guys. Like yeah. we still have five guys to this day. Um, yeah. A lot of that's because Tyler and Wes were smart enough to just say, let's make everything really clean, really simple, and just try to be very staunch about not changing anything unless we absolutely, absolutely have to. Interesting. So the only thing that changed was the, pr- the products change over time. Because particularly early on, like the customers were, were, you know, I mean, they were poking holes going, okay, well, you need this. Like, and when you hear that from enough of them, you go, okay, we, well, we need to do that. But man, I mean, in the last, you know, this has been since 2007. I started in 2008. In 11 years now, it has, it's almost like Craigslist. Like if you pull up Craigslist right now. Doesn't look much different. It doesn't look much different than it did 10 years ago or even, you know, however, when it was Or Drudge Report. Or, yeah, there's certain web it, properties that just look the exact same. And you know same. what you're going to get yep. and it works and it does its job and then it's done. And that's that's what Schedule Fly is like. It's almost like a, I mean, we, we joke now because like 
we'll get into our merchandise in a minute, but you know, like my kids, they're 15, 12 and 10 and the, the older two watch stranger things and the Goldbergs and they're all in the eighties and all this kind of stuff. And they all like, they kind of like harken back to this nostalgic eighties, <laughs> yeah. like the olden days as they call it, you know, when we were growing up. Yep. But, but I mean, we've kind of joked now, like almost like the software, like we almost position it as like this kind of nostalgic thing. Everything else is changing and advancing and, and, moving so quickly and schedule fly just kind of stays the yep. same. And I think there's some comfort that people take in that again, particularly our audience, which mm-hmm. is not chains, which is not people that are constantly able, people that run independent restaurants and they like, you know, that's, yep. it's kind of this down home sort of feel. So I don't know much about the restaurant industry, but are there any big players in the HR space that are real common? Um, cause I, cause I imagine you guys think of yourself as HR software or that's who you're selling to is somebody who's thinking about, human relations or maybe it isn't maybe it's some other most of the time our customer is either the owner of the restaurant Mm -hmm. or the gm Mm -hmm. i mean they're they typically i mean when you get to be a restaurant group and maybe you have five locations and you kind of have a real defined group maybe three or four concepts or whatever then you might have an hr person that comes in but typically Mm -hmm. i mean honestly our growth we have no salespeople, none Mm -hmm. never made a sales call the growth has been through Word of mouth, primarily, and the majority of that is turnover. Some of it's, you know, word of mouth recommendations. A lot of these restaurant owners are friends with each other. They hang out, Mm -hmm. they talk. But a lot of it's, you know, we've been fortunate that um, turnover in the restaurant industry is really high, like 70% or something. It's, It's significant. Sure. And so if you're a manager of a restaurant and you're using ScheduleFly and you leave and you go to a new restaurant and you're back to riding the... You're back to doing what Wes did prior this to developing sucks. this. sucks. I don't want to do this anymore. This sucks. Yeah. Is there something out there? Oh, schedule fly. Or, you know, maybe an employee comes to a restaurant and says, look, I used to get my schedule at the last place on my phone. It mm-hmm. got texted to me, and now I'm calling. Why is everybody calling? Like, why don't we use schedule fly? I'm like, what is that? Well, they go to our website. They get a 30-day free $30 trial. a month. It seems like a yeah. no-brainer. Like, we don't even take their credit card. They, we give them the free trial. I mean, it's fully functional. It becomes their account. Like, they go, they sign up. We don't, we don't mess with them. We don't yep. pressure them. We don't call them and try to get them to, like, convert. Yep. We leave them alone, and if they need anything, we're very, like, very helpful and very quick mm-hmm. to help. But otherwise, we just so it sounds like they don't have a lot of back office software in general. Maybe they've got a loyalty system. They definitely have some sort of point of sale software, but they're probably not sale. doing much on the back office. You guys are probably one of the very few investments that they're that they're making. It sounds. I mean, like. there's you know there's there's uh there's inventory software, mm-hmm. there's online ordering, there's things like that. So there's and there's more and more of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in these days, a lot of it is getting integrated and tied into the point of sale systems, which is uh, yet another thing that literally everybody else in our space does and we don't do. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there have, gosh, for the last three or four years, has been probably close to $100 million invested into our space. Wow. So we've got a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. But the way we kind of look at it is everybody else is over here. They have, you know, venture capital investors, mm-hmm. rapid growth models, Lots of sales, lots of marketing, lots of investment into technology, um, dialing into the point of sale systems and all these integrations. So they're kind of all over here, and then we're just kind of over here doing our thing. Yep. Know, there's, there's, there is no integration. Got it. Got it. Sometimes simplicity is a very powerful feature, I've, I've learned, and just doing one thing really well can really uh, be, be a winning strategy. <laughs> that's been our model, man. It's been very simple. It's, you know, keep the software really easy. Mm-hmm. And, and like fast, reliable, simple, uh, take great care of our customers and mm-hmm. then invest 
back into the community we serve, which yep. we can which we can get into. But so 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 Wes and Tyler get started in 07. You've got your or is it 06? And then but it's it's a, it's about a year before your yeah. earnouts done with first yeah. research, and yeah. then then you join. How how do you think? Because I've I've got some good friends who were in similar situations where they could have gone and technically started a company with some buddies, but they were in a different situation and they joined a year later. How did that dynamic work out, work out for you? Is it, were, were there ever any regrets like, Oh, I wasn't one of the founders of this or no, or, because or any, these guys were really, um, they were really fair in the way we set up the, mm -hmm. the equity and the uh, pay structure. That's so, great. Yeah. It worked out really well. That's so. great. Sometimes people are really weird about, Oh, if you weren't here from day one, I always with, with level, the last company that I started, I always said that we had three or four different founding events. <laughs> and so right. there were waves of people that I considered founders because there were just things where the company changed so dramatically yeah. with bringing somebody on or with changing the name or with something that we did where I felt like there's multiple founding events in any company. But I know some some people are just weird about it and like, oh, no, I'm a founder and you're not. And therefore, we're we're different. But I've, I've always found it to be more productive to think more inclusively. about. about yeah, I mean, I, I feel really lucky. You know, Wes and Tyler were um, I mean, we're we uh, we have, you know, a disparate uh, amount of equity, but we, mm -hmm. you know, we pay each other the same. We mm -hmm. we um, represent the company the same. I mean, I'm, I'm actually sort of the voice of the company, if you will. Wes and Tyler kind of like to, you know, they're a little bit more introverted. They like to stay sort of on the back. That's kind of why they brought me in. We actually thought we were going to be, we thought one of the ways we may go with this was to sell to chains. Okay. And that was my job with first research was selling big ticket, six figure contracts to big banks. And okay. so we thought, okay, those guys, you get one Chili's or one Ruby Tuesday. Yeah. They weren't going to get on a plane and go sell to some, you know, CTI, CTO of Chili's. Like that was not what, the, but I was going to do that. Like yeah. that's what I did. And I liked it. So we thought that Wes and I actually, I, I talked him into going out to, um, was it California pizza kitchen out in LA early on? I was that's like, a Wes, chain you, last time I checked. Yeah. yeah, it was. <laughs> and we had this opportunity and I was like, dude, you got to get like, you got to get your tie. And I mean, put on a tie. Cause I was so used to doing that with banks. We should, we should, I think he may have taught me. I can't remember if we had the ties on or not. He may have taught me out of it. We showed up with like our blue no, shirts. I, our, I've got, I don't know anything about California pizza kitchen, but if you're going to name yourself the California pizza kitchen, you're not wearing ties yourself. Are you? <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, was was, anybody in corporate wearing a tie? No, they were not wearing ties, <laughs> and, but we, we fly out there and we sit there with this guy, the CTO and some other lady. And, um, I was like, this is our chance, man. We're going to like, we're going to nail yeah. this thing. And we're, well, we go through and we show him schedule fly and he literally sits there and we get done and he goes, that's fantastic. It's really amazing. I, I mean, I'm really impressed with what I just saw. It, it, I don't know what's missing, but I know something's missing. Yeah. And uh, we were like, what's missing? He's like, I, I don't know. Well, we left and Wes goes, well, we just need to forget chains. I was like, what do you mean? He goes, because that guy is like every other CTO of every other chain. He is expecting things to be complicated. He's never going to buy into simplicity uh, because they're so used to complicated systems. We're not cut out to serve chains. We're not going to do the things he's going to make us do and want us to do. And that was it. Yeah. And we, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of realized then I credit West for going, you know, he knew it. He's like, no way. We're yeah. not, we don't want to build the kind of business we're going to have to build to, to do what we need to do to serve 
that type of operation. We'd yeah. have to have a lot more people, a lot more structure, a lot more complexity. He's like, I'm not interested in that. Do you want to do that? I was like, not really. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. That's awesome that he understood the value of owning that niche and what that niche was. But you do you you do understand why it's so appealing to sell to a chain, right? Like, I don't know how many California pizza kitchens there are. I haven't been to one in 20 years. But but my guess is that they probably have 1,000, 1,200 Well, they do, but and, you know what? Yeah. So here, we were really lucky that we had, um, we had the financial flexibility mm-hmm. to not have to raise any capital. Yep. But to be able to basically fund this ourselves, bootstrap it and do it our way. And it really worked out well, John, because the problem with that is, is that if you do that, they own you, right? Like if they want you to do this, this, and this to continue that contract you just signed to renew it the next year, you're going to do it. Yeah, and you're very sudden, beholden to if one yeah, customer is 20% of your revenue. That's exactly <laughs> or right. Or it would have been 70% or 80% or whatever it is. I wrote a blog. We took our blog down last year, but I wrote a blog post one time. It was uh, why we left $250,000 and a million headaches on the table. It was another chain about a couple years later, and this guy had he had used ScheduleFly at a small organization. He'd gone uh, there. He was very familiar. And he was trying to talk us into to, to doing it there. And we were like, no, man, we're not the right. Because we have competition. And the early competitor that was actually doing this a little bit before us uh, is a company called Hot Schedules. Okay. And uh, now they're, they're an 800-pound gorilla in our space now. I mean, they just sold their business for like $300 million or something wow. like did, that. Wow. Do they do more than restaurants or – they do, but they're serving. They okay. built that like they these were these guys were at like Outback, I think, uh, oh, wow. or maybe it was what it was a P. It was, they were at PF Chang's, I think. Okay, they built it to serve chains. Now yeah. they serve, we overlap some, but that's what they built it to do. And so when this guy this this I mean it was been a two hundred fifty thousand dollar a year contract. And we were like, we're not going to do it, man. Like, we don't want your business. And the guy's like, are you freaking kidding me, dude? Like, I, are you, is this a joke? And I was like, no, like literally you should go use hot. Like, we don't want to serve yeah. you. This is not what our business is here to do. Yeah. And because we had that, we didn't have investors breathing down our necks saying, you got to grow, got to grow, got to go get that revenue. We knew we could take a long view. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to make those kinds of decisions and it worked out extraordinarily well because there's no, we've got 7,200 restaurants now and nobody has any meaningful share of the revenue i mean so you're not beholden to any one of them that's great yeah no well let's take a step back where were you where were you educated i went to college at davidson davidson okay yeah and i was a history major because i thought i was gonna i thought i was gonna be a doctor and i sucked so naturally you got a history major yeah that's exactly (laughs) right i sucked it uh well i you know i didn't put forth the effort i I wanted to be a doctor because i didn't know what the hell i wanted to do and i Mm -hmm. thought i wanted to be a doctor but i clearly wasn't making the effort to do the things i needed to do to be a doctor like studying and by doctor you mean md not just a doctor in some philosophy no 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 no. i mean i wanted to be an md like i was failing you know nearly failing biology and physics and all this stuff and partying and not doing the stuff i needed Mm -hmm. to do and i was getting ready to transfer to chapel hill and the the dean of the school at the time was like dude just what do you like and i was like i don't know i like history what the hell am i gonna do with that he goes just be a history major if you graduate you'll be fine i was like okay that's what I did. It's just like the easiest major there. Okay. And, uh, and I left there and I started at Nations Bank. Um, oh, wow. The predecessor yeah. to Bank of America, for those who don't the know. The predecessor to Bank of America. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And um, what, what types of things were you working on at Nations? Uh, I was in, well, I started out on the retail side and I went into um, commercial uh, cash management, treasury management, as we called it at the time. Okay. Uh, once again, I went into that because I'm around all these guys and gals at Davidson that are going and like, I felt like I had to go 
get a good job yeah. because that's well, what Charlotte, else Charlotte's a doing. banking town. I think everybody in Charlotte understands this, whether they've ever worked at a bank or not. But I think for a lot of my friends, I'm from DC originally, and a lot yeah. of my friends just don't have any, any concept of what being a banking town really means. There is a lot is of a pressure to go get that kind of town. job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No doubt about it. And so everybody was plus in, in, in that environment. I mean, Davidson's a pretty rigorous, you know, um, academic school and everybody I mean, just everybody was going to get these really good jobs I, you know what i wanted to do i wanted to go live in utah and be a bartender and a ski instructor and i pussed out because i just felt like i would have been like the loser of the class like <laughs> so i went and took this job at nation's bank and um i did fine i did well but I, you know i was really unhappy like i mm-hmm. didn't like it i didn't enjoy it and uh but i happened to meet bobby martin there and bobby is the once again, you know, Bobby and Wes, the two that have, you know, I've, I've really been so fortunate to get to know Bobby was there as a commercial banker and he had this idea for this company called first research. He's like, do you want to help me start this thing? And at first I was like, no man, because at the time I was moving to Los Angeles with my fiance, uh, who's now my wife, Lauren. And, um, I was like, dude, I can't know. I got, this was right after nation nation's bank bought bank of America, but they used the name because it was a better name. So I was like, man, they're out in California now. I was like, well, well, just like they bought CNCB, bought Nations and took the name Nations, right? Or I think that there was a, even NCNB a or yeah. NCNB. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Lauren was wanting to go out to California. She was trying to get into acting. I was like, wow, I can probably move out there with the bank. And Bobby's like, hey, do you want to, you know, you're going out to California. How about help me start this business? I was like, hell no, dude. I, <laughs> we, we're moving across the country. Lauren's trying to get into acting. Yeah. She's going to like wait tables, ironically. Yeah. And uh, no, I got to have a good job. And I was there like three months and I hated it. The culture was really toxic because this is after Nations, within the first year of Nations Bank buying them. And they're kind of like, you know, what the hell? Like who, who are these rednecks from North Carolina that bought our big <laughs> bank, right? And yeah. uh, it was a really bad culture and they didn't, they didn't want to have anything to do with, you know, what was going on back in the Carolinas. There was just a lot of negativity out there, not towards me. I mean, people were sure. nice as hell to me because I didn't matter. I was like, you know, just yeah. assistant vice president, you know. So, so, but just the whole culture was no good. And I just, I just was like, one day I just called Bobby. I was like, oh, I'm ready. Man, I'm in. Like, yeah. um, I'll do it. You know, let's That's great. work and out some equity or whatever and I'm, I'll, we'll go. And right. not exact figures, but like, are you, are we talking about like a 30% pick, like you're cut to 30% of your pay or what's the order of magnitude of what you're giving up to go work? Uh, well, <laughs> I got really lucky because so I had like a base pay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll even tell you, like at the time it was, uh, like my base pay out there, I was like 25, 26. I was making like 45 grand plus mm-hmm. incentive. I could make whatever it was, I don't know, 75 or something like mm-hmm. that. And, uh, and I talked, I was like, Bobby, I can't go backwards in salary. So he matched my base and then okay. we worked out the equity share. And, uh, and then there was the, you know, basically the incentive on top of that. Like I was, he's like, okay, go sell to banks you yeah. know, and I'll pay you X percent of whatever you sell and X percent of whatever you renew. And that was it. Awesome. So how long were you at that before DNB comes and acquires the company? I started there in February of 2000, like three or four months after we moved. Wow. So right before the dot-com collapse, because that was March was when MicroStrategy reported some accounting irregularities and then everything fell apart. Everything did. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And we were, um, I mean, we were a web-based business. It was Mm -hmm. delivered over the web, but 
it not was, a web one. It wasn't not a, a dot com. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, no, it was a service business. And what, what year did you guys sell again? 2007. 2007. So what was that process like? Like how involved were you in the sale process of, uh, of first research? I mean, I was involved in the sense that there were three of us that were shareholders mm-hmm. and um, they, you know, Bobby, Bobby was the majority shareholder. He had started the business. He led the discussions, but you know, it was basically down to he and Ingo Windsor, who was our VP of research and myself um, on, you know, making a final decision or whatever it was. It was really Bobby's. I mean, it was his. his did you guys hire bankers to sell the company or did somebody reach out that Bobby already knew? No, nope. we just already knew somebody from DNB. Or? We had this, this guy named Tyler. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Tyler knew what he was doing. So we were like, Hey man, just go figure this thing but out. You like hired he, him as an employee, not as he a was already advisor. an employee. Yeah, yeah. Tyler came in. He, he saw, I think what Tyler saw is that, Bobby and Ingo and I and the rest of us didn't really know what we were doing in terms of, I mean, we had a good business, was very, very profitable, highly profitable. And, um, but we didn't know how to, we didn't, we didn't know how to turn this into a business that could scale and that could diversify into multiple different segments or different Mm -hmm. industries, different verticals. And Tyler and a guy named David Buffalo, who we hired for uh, his VP of marketing, Wes was, all those guys, like, Tyler figured out, okay, who do we need in place? Like what are the types of roles and what do we need to do to this business to make it attractive? Mm-hmm. He got that. He understood that he had done that. He knew how this stuff worked. And, uh, he was a big part of that for sure. Very cool. Yeah. So let's go back to schedule fly. Um, and, and I'll probably, um, re- return to first research. Cause yeah, I yeah. think there, a lot of the experiences are interesting across both, but back to schedule fly. Um, how, how do you think about growing the business? You know, you mentioned that people leave and go to a new business and that's a real obvious way to, to get a new logo. Um, you, you mentioned that you're not, you don't have salespeople on staff. How, how do you guys think about, about growth and how active do you get in trying to drive that growth? It's a great question, man. We're, we're very, I'll, I mean, I'll tell you, we're, you could say unique, you could say weird, whatever you want to say. Like we don't. Unique is usually weird. I think they're synonyms. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and I don't, I mean, that's good. Like I view that as a good thing. I mean, we've kind of built what we want to, I, I feel very, very lucky. We all do because we built this business the way we wanted it to work. And it has fortunately worked out for us. Um, so we've never, we've never made significant investments into sales. We've mm-hmm. done no sales or marketing. Uh, we haven't looked to, you know, like if you go get investors, they want you to figure out how to push the repeat button. Mm-hmm. Okay. You spend X amount of dollars here creates this amount of revenue, right? Well, let's go spend 10 times that many dollars. So we get you know, whatever that uh, variance in revenue is. We, wanted this business to grow steadily, predictably at a pace that we could handle so that we didn't have to bring more people in. Mm-hmm. We wanted to always make sure that we were, again, the software was simple and we're taking great care of our customers. Like that's key. That mm-hmm. is critical. You got to remember we're serving hospitality people and particularly independent restaurants. This isn't a chain where there's scripts and there's like a lot yeah. of it's just people. It's a chef owner that's really passionate about what he or she is doing, has a couple of restaurants, really, really cares about being sort of a, you know, a third home to the customer, you know, their home, their office, and this, this place they go. And they're almost they're, like creative types. They're in many very places. creative yeah. types. Yeah. Absolutely right brain type folks. And mm-hmm. so 
we said, and, and then and typically the really good ones, like they have a very um, carefully curated, thoughtful, intentional, simple menu. They have really good service and hospitality and customer service and care and warmth. Like that's the exact same model we've, we've tried to deploy within mm-hmm. first research. This is how we're wired too. Like it, works well for us to serve those types of people. So what, what type of growth rates are typical for you guys? Or is it, does it just depend on it? I mean, early it was obviously a lot more. I mean, yeah. cause I mean, earlier, dude, it was like the wild West. I mean, we were adding like thousands of customers a year, wow. you know? So here we are. What? So it's 12 years in, we have 7,200 customers. Mm-hmm. We're adding a lot now. We also lose more now because there's more competition out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, back in the day, it was basically us and hot, like one other business, right? And that was kind of it. And now there's 10 businesses. Okay. Tons and tons of money uh, put into the space. And of course, then we lose them when they close their doors, which is, you know, I mean, yeah. that's half the customers we lose are because they, they're shut Yeah, down. I don't know what the churn is like in restaurants, but just anecdotally, it seems I mean, like a lot of a lot of restaurants shut are constantly coming into and out of existence. Uh, yeah, that's right. I mean, but we use con- consistently, we lose uh, between one to one and a half percent of our customers. Okay. That doesn't seem bad. Oh, in a month, even that doesn't seem that bad. Nah, it's like one, you know, less than one and a half on average. So, so you, so you lose about 70 a month then because 1% of 7,000 would be about somewhere 70. around there. Okay. But then that doesn't include, that's not net. That's just what we lose. And that doesn't include what then you're adding 80 or that. whatever. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so you haven't invested in, in sales, but you obviously have a sales function. You just, it's not, there's not a sales head of sales. It's just, we're all selling. I, I, I mean, the sales function is honestly just the website yeah. and the software. Like, so what, so what we do is we said, okay, we don't want to, um, we don't, you, and you can't scale like for 40 bucks a month on average, you can't scale sales. Mm-hmm. Like you can't hire a salesperson that can sell enough businesses to make enough money yeah. that it's meaningful. Yeah. And if the lifetime value of the customer is like 1200 bucks or whatever, it's just, yeah. It's just work. math. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because you're, t- I mean, these are people that are really hard to get in touch with. Like yep. if you're smiling and dialing for independent restaurant owners and GMs all day long, you will burn yourself out real, real fast. If you're selling yeah, for $480 a year. Yeah. <laughs> After a trial, I could grief. So what we, so do you think much about marketing then? Because obviously marketing is a more scalable. Well, we did, we tried some selling. emails early on, mm-hmm. but we, it's just not what we, it's not what, we like to do. It's not what we wanted to do. It's not what we wanted to be known for. We wouldn't, we didn't want to be a company that was bombarding them with emails all mm-hmm. the time. So we, um, one of the things early on we figured out is that it would be really meaningful to have good content on our website, on our blog. Mm-hmm. So that's a marketing strategy for sure. Yeah. The yeah. marketing strategy has been essentially, we decided that it would make sense for me to go interview our customers. So you do a lot of podcasting. That's what led to this. So we started interviewing customers. We had a quote podcast. Like we would literally, I would, I had this little $30 mic that I bought at Best Buy and I stuck it in my laptop and I would call a customer on my Blackberry. Like, and we still have Blackberries, put it on speakerphone and hold it up like this. And I would interview them. And then we would take the file and we put it on our block. Yeah. That was awesome. like a quote podcast. <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, the content was really, really good. But we were like, I bet nobody's actually listening to these things. Because this was, again, this was like in 2009 or 10 that I started doing this. Nobody was really dialed in, especially like when it's sitting on a blog. Like, 
like you hit like what what yeah no i think because i think the person who first coined the term podcast was adam curry and i want to say that that was maybe maybe 2008 2009 so i don't even think podcasting was a term back then yeah i don't think it was like we just put the audio file on our blog like whatever we called it (laughs) but then we were like you know this is really good content like interview these restaurant owners and they would just it was like basically tell me your story like how have you made it work it's a tough business like what have you done to be successful you get all these really really good interviews and uh we thought okay well what what can we do with that Mm-hmm. And so we started summarizing it on our blog and we were like, okay, that's good. But then back in like 2010, um, I was actually, I mean, I was reading a lot of blogs and I was, I think I was listening to, maybe I wasn't listening to podcasts, but I was definitely reading a lot of blogs. And I started uh, reading about these bloggers that would self-publish books. Mm-hmm. I was like, hmm, I wonder if we could self-publish a book. And uh, there was a company called Create Space out of Charleston. And you could basically, you could, you know, submit your content, publish a book, and they would put it on Amazon for you. Oh, that's awesome. Print and ship on demand. We were like, shit, this is freaking great. Yeah. So we decided, okay, well, let's take our 20 best interviews, transcribe them, edit them. We hired an editor for like a thousand bucks or something, like get out all the stupid stuff and, and uh, you know, redundancies. And then we just had this, you know, 20 restaurant owner, 20 chapter book called restaurant owners uncorked Tyler's name. Tyler came up with the name. That's awesome. Tim Ferriss published a book like that. Dave Asprey did a book like that. See, those guys are who I was reading. Like that's what it was. So Ferris, but what Ferris did is he, um, he did tools of Titans, which Mm -hmm. is like that. Yeah, that was a fantastic I think book. he must have copied us because we beat him to the button. No, <laughs> but what he did a good job of stringing together really good things. Like, I thought when we did this, I was like, okay, we're going to interview 20 owners. We're going to have all this stuff, but there's going to be three common themes that they all have. And we're going to write this book about, like, the three things you got to do. And it was just, it would have been intellectually dishonest to, because a lot of people do that. Like, here's the things you got to, yeah. it's bullshit because there were everybody that like every time I'd be like, okay, they're all doing it this way. And then somebody would come along and do it the total opposite way yep. and be just as successful. So I just, we just said, you know what? We just need to literally print, you know, the edited version of the interview, smooth it out and just leave it alone. Don't have a point. Don't have an opinion, which makes it harder because you know, if you go say, here's the three things you need, you will sell more books that way. I yeah. mean, there's no doubt about it. That's if you what, distill it down into some people want, artificially, yes, people want it thing. distilled down and they yeah. want it simple. And, they, and there are, there are, there are domains where that is certainly, you know, can be done and it, it works. I, I felt like it would have been for me. I felt like it would have been, um, I didn't feel good about it. I didn't, I, I could have, I guarantee you. I mean, I know things I could have said, Yeah. but I was just like, this is bullshit. So we just put it out there and we told our customers about it and it started selling and people liked it. And we started selling a lot of copies and uh, we were like, oh, this is, you know, this is good. That, that's really interesting. You guys landed on content-based marketing long before it became popular, but you don't have a sales team. You, you, you know, you're selling Dude, purely through marketing. I was so <laughs> terrified that we would never sell a copy of the book. Literally, I transcribed the entire thing myself. I sat in my office for eight hours a day for like three or four months listening and, and I suck at typing. 
like I type almost with one hand and, and like, I can't look like, I can't look at the screen and type. So I hunt and peck and I sat there and I did the whole, I was terrified to hire somebody to transcribe. Cause I was like, I'm going to look like the biggest jackass if we put this book out there and nobody buys it. And I spent all this time <laughs> doing these interviews and I, so we did hire an editor and, uh, he helped, uh, he helped us just kind of clean it up. And, um, we hired, uh, our friend Luke who does our film work, which i which we'll get into. And he's a very brilliant, uh, designer and a very creative person. And he designed the cover for the book. And, uh, so we spent like 1200 bucks or something, maybe total Wow, 1500. I don't know, somewhere around there. No more. Although than your four months of transcription probably cost more than that. But well, what's the cost? <laughs> yeah. But you know what, what else was I doing? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, that's like, true. So, so that was it. And we put it out there and it worked really well. And then we, um, so we kind of kept doing the interviews, but then I'm like, I just really like, uh, I like reading and I like watching TV and I like watching film. And Luke is a buddy of ours. And he had, Wes is a, like a expert fly fisherman down in Wilmington. And, uh, Luke had made this film of Wes and his buddies, uh, called Redfish Can't Jump. And it was about, how, you know, commercial fishers were, were depopulating the redfish down and in, in, mm-hmm. uh, off the coast of North Carolina. And Luke is like this young guy. I mean, at the time he was like, you know, 25, 26 and, um, really talented. And we were like, Hmm, this content's real good. Some people will read it. Some people like to watch things. What if we went out and we start filming these interviews? Like we go out and we film you or film me, talk and actually weren't even filming me we were talking them like i would say tell me how you attract and retain good people or whatever so luke would luke and i would fly around to boulder and st louis and chicago and we're like all over the place fort lauderdale and we would film these owners talking about what they've done to be successful and so the book was called restaurant owners on court so we called this the restaurant owners on court video series and we'd have these like three minute videos and like we'd go film one owner and we'd have like four or five videos out of that wow. film session. And they were like three minutes each and it was content for our blog. That's great. You know, it was really good. And Luke is like talented as shit and he was young and it didn't, he didn't charge us a lot cause you know, he was trying to build his business and you know, whatever. So that was, uh, that led us into doing a lot, a lot of film work and we had a lot of success with that too. That, that That's awesome. And I, I think creating good content is, um, is a very easy marketing strategy to let. It's not easy, but it's, it's something that people should latch on to. You, if you create good content, people crave good content. People are looking for good content. People are looking for, uh, we always felt like we just, we wanted to look what do restaurants do. They have, a, like I said, they've got a really good ones. They've got a very intentional, thoughtful, curated, simple product. Mm-hmm. Check. We have that. They have great hospitality, warmth, authenticity, mm-hmm genuine interaction like there's no bullshit scripts and acting it's just you know how much flair are you wearing today that's right (laughs) that's right (laughs) like when they call us or email us there's no it's just human interaction right it's very personal check we got that and what else they do they invest into their community Mm -hmm. they have events they donate money they they do all kinds i mean they're fucking incredibly valuable to the community way undervalued. I think in terms of like the way most people perceive like independent restaurants add so much value to their communities. If you got to think of a great city, Austin, San Francisco, New York, Chicago, what do you think about good restaurants, good music, right? Boom, right away. Well, 
So we went, okay, but they invest in their community and our community is independent restaurants. It's not a, it's not a geography. It's not here in Charlotte. It's just mm-hmm. restaurants everywhere. Well, how do we invest in that? Well, why don't we help ed- share their stories and, mm-hmm. and create a platform to share in- inspirational and educational stories and wisdom and advice and, you know, use, you know, leverage as a force multiplier for the knowledge that we can yep. congregate and well, that's, that's awesome. I didn't realize how big of a role content plays in, in, in your strategy. Um, well, I don't know how big of a role it plays. Like, we don't yeah. know. Like, you can't measure that. Like, yeah, I, yeah. do people, like, what is it? Like, I don't know. But I have it no must idea. be working like, or you wouldn't keep doing it. Well, we know? do it because we, it means a lot to us. It means yeah. a lot to our customers. We enjoy it and we're good at it. Like, yeah. so until something breaks, the business starts failing, like, you know. Yeah. But again, this is not something we could do if we had investors. They would, because you can't, you can't yeah. say. What's the ROI the re- on this? Yes. Yeah. Okay. For every dollar you spend creating this, like what's your return? I have no fucking idea. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea, but I know, I'll tell you this. I know that, um, that uh, people really, like when we go interview somebody, they, you know, and we try to get good people that are in good towns, that have a lot of good restaurants, that are well-respected we share their story and what do they want to do? Everybody loves to share their own story, right? So they go tell their friend, you know, they put it on social media and then all of a sudden all these restaurants in Charleston or Boulder or, you know, Atlanta or or New York are seeing that schedule fly is producing this good content. Yeah. And what does that do? I don't know. Does it make them sign up today? Does it make them, but I know one thing, there's nothing negative about it. There's no downside other yeah. than my time and our time. The upside is like maybe it really makes a difference in terms of how people view our brand. Yeah. No, I, I was going to say, I think the brand awareness is probably the, the one thing that most people would talk about. It's interesting to me having done this podcast and it, it's a small number of listeners and I'm still very early in the going, but I can point to a whole lot of interesting connections that came about because somebody listened. And I think that, an engaged audience is more important than a raw number of listeners. And that's why you see podcasting. It's why you see um, content creation is, is such a powerful force because I'd rather have a thousand, um, a thousand listeners that are completely engaged than a million that have nothing to do with, with the underlying product. It's just, there's a force multiplier in terms of people who are seeking out content. And in your case, you're, Everybody that's listening is a restaurant owner, presumably, or somebody who wants to open a restaurant or, you know, and so I I could see why that would be very, very powerful. Um, So changing gears a bit, how do you split the responsibilities between you and Wes and Tyler and the other other two um, uh, folks in the business now? So good question. I mean, we all, without getting into a lot of detail, you know, we have, I mean, we have trials that have to be set up. We have customer support emails, phone calls, um, the, and then the back end, just keeping the site running. And we own our servers. We don't outsource anything. We outsource nothing. Um, so we all split that up and everybody's really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Hank is phenomenal at what Hank built our billing system too. We used to have to take a phone call for every single credit card, whether it was a new customer or an or somebody changing i mean literally they had to call us we had no way for them to do it hank came in and he built that hank hank uh 
writes code as well, and he's really good at what he does, and he does our customer service, and Charles handles all the servers and just makes sure. I mean, he's dialed in all the time, and he goes up to Raleigh to our server farm and changes these things out when he needs to, and he's just, I mean, big thing for us is just, is the site working? Is it fast? Is it reliable? Are there any, you know, just keep this thing going. Keep it moving. Uh, and Tyler does all of our financials and our billing, and he sets up the trials, and, you know, Wes has written every bit of code. Any change we make, you know, he does that. Anytime there, and th- I mean, to this day, I mean, we were laughing a couple weeks ago. There was somebody did something that caused some bug to manifest itself. Like nobody's gone through that sequence of clicks in 12 years. It threw millions <laughs> and millions of people using this. And like somehow somebody did something weird. And Wes was like, damn, I mean, can you believe that? Nobody's, it's like, yeah, here's this, you know, I figured it. And right As away. a software guy, I believe it. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. And you know, he's, and what's cool about it is like, he can be anywhere. Like he just, yeah, he can be on his damn phone. Like he, he might be on his freaking skiff out there fishing. And I'll be like, text hey man there's like this issue and three minutes later he's like got it fixed nice and then we tell the cut and we're good we're good we got it fixed but you know I, I i give him so much credit he and tyler really for adamantly sticking to the importance of simplicity because dude we have three hundred thousand end users mm-hmm. on any given day we get like 30 emails 40 emails we get like five or 10 phone. I answer the phone calls, wow. except for when I'm traveling to do the podcast, I do the phone calls. Yeah. That's almost nothing. That's crazy. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, but that, that goes to the value of simplicity Yeah, absolutely. and, and just knowing that does that limit us by like not letting us serve chance? Does it limit our potential? Sure. But does it make the business fun, enjoyable, easy to run, friction-free, profitable, work-life balance, exciting every day that we wake up, not dealing with fires all the time. Yes, 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 yes. Like That's awesome. Yeah. So so two big themes that came out in different restaurant-related interviews I've done. Again, I mentioned that I talked to Britton McCorkle from Bottle Cap, and I also talked to a guy named Jeff Latulip from a three-store chain that has aspirations to be a lot bigger called Dirt Eat Clean. And two of the things that they talked about were um, – kind of the gig economy and the Postmates and the Uber Eats of the world. Um, But also the other dynamic that unrelated to the gig economy, but is the, um, the role that um, a lot of the micro brews have have just popped up out of nowhere and are starting to compete with the restaurants. Do either of those kind of sea changes affect your business at all? Or are you kind of isolated from those? Pretty isolated, man. I mean, we're, we're I'll be honest with you. We're actually getting to a point where we, I told a customer the other day, I was like, you're, you're better off using pencil and paper than schedule flight. If you can, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually, I think there's so much technology now that, uh, it gets you distracted from your core business. A lot of times, like there's Mm -hmm. hundreds of millions of dollars invested in restaurant technology. It's good to a point, but we kind of have this philosophy that, you know, minimum technology, Mm-hmm. Minimum technology plus maximum hospitality. That's what creates a good restaurant. Because if you think about the restaurant space, like the, I mean, who knows? Like maybe I'm completely wrong. But the way we look at it, Wes and I talk about this a lot. It's like, okay, you've got big fast food chains. Like McDonald's, I bet in five years won't have more than like one person in there, maybe 10 years. I don't know. But they're just basically manning the machines. They'll have a new CEO, that's for sure. Well, they got a new, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is, that's for sure. Yeah, that was like today, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're, uh, 
they're they're going to limit their number of people working in their facility. Yeah. Because they're deploying technology for efficiency and for scale, which is fine. Good. I got three kids. Sometimes I want to go to McDonald's and get a cheap burger and it's quick and whatever. And if there's less people and there's less like, but, but if I'm in New York and I want a mutton chop and I go into a Keens, I'm not expecting a kiosk to automate it. Right. Like I want some customer. Well, look, well, here's the thing. Everything's like we're on our screens all the time now. All the time, right? We're ordering shit to our house all the time. We're getting more and more isolated. So we believe that the independent restaurant has a really important role to play Mm and a very valuable future because where else do you go where you're actually going to literally then doing this podcast where you're going to do what we did here, which is put our phone down, Mm -hmm. ignore it, and have a conversation. You don't do it anywhere else but an independent restaurant. Like, that's it. You know, because you're not doing it at McDonald's because you're there for something fast or whatever, and you're moving on. But this is where you go with your family or your friends, or you go and you sit and there's other people in your community and there's diversity there and there's ways to have conversations. It's interesting you mention that because whenever I meet anybody new, they're like, let's go have coffee. Yes. Or lunch. Yes. Or a drink. Like that's how they want to meet. It's a chain, (laughs) right? It's going to be at some cool local spot, right? Most of the time. Yep, always. Or maybe Starbucks. Or a microbrewery. (laughs) Or a microbrewery. But yes, exactly. That's exactly right. And so, you know, we feel like they have a a really big role to play in the future because the more everything else goes to screens and isolation and automation, the more we, the three of us sitting here right now, we need Mm -hmm. that connection. And if that's the place we can get it outside of our home and our work, there's one other place and that's the independent restaurant. And so I feel like the value they provide to the communities they are in just increases every day as everything else moves. It's a barbell, Mm -hmm. right? It balances everything out. And so I think it's, did you get that term from Nassim Nicholas Tlaib? Fuck yeah, dude. I love Tlaib. I love him. Oh yeah, (laughs) absolutely. I look at everything as barbells now. I like, uh, barbells and deadlifts it's all diet I can think about <laughs> fitness i know he's not on the deadlifts anymore i think he hurt his back but uh, okay, okay yeah but no I, I look i mean it's it's very true like there's there's a lot to that i mean yeah. he's a, he's a smart dude no he's he's brilliant so so what was your first big challenge that could have tanked the company <laughs> i like to ask everybody this because i feel like everybody's faced this at some point you know i saw that in your uh and it's fine if you didn't have I one. I mean, we, I don't think we've had anything that, like, if we got that wrong, we would have been mm-hmm. really in trouble, once again, because we had the flexibility to do this patiently and slowly. I will say this. Earlier this year, we, uh, we blinked. And because we started, we started thinking that we needed to build these integrations because our growth was slowing. We were seeing every competitor in our space doing integrations with the POS systems. We were like, maybe we should try this. And thankfully, it didn't work out. Mm-hmm. And it's been the best thing that's happened. And here's what happened. So we go out and we start doing these POS integrations. And there's two things that we learned. Number one is... Now, just is, is this oh, yeah. like the, the more modern point of sales, like a square point of sale? It's, or is this like the micros? It's or any the, of them. Okay. It's any of them. But here's why. I'll tell you why the integrations are big. There's several things. But the main thing is, it's if you take a schedule and you put it into the POS system or you tie it in, when, a, when somebody comes to clock in, if they're scheduled to be there at 10 a.m. and they want to clock in at 9.55 and they, there's nothing preventing them, then you're paying for five minutes of extra labor. Mm-hmm. 
and wages are rising, labor costs are going up, restaurants are like, how can I control my labor costs? Well, if we bring this schedule in from our whatever our scheduling software is and we, we have it integrated in here, then if we say, okay, somebody scheduled at 10 can't clock in before 10, then we can minimize our mm-hmm. overtime and our, our overuse of, you know, or overpay for mm-hmm. extra labor that we didn't schedule and we didn't plan for. That's interesting. I don't make the connection on why that would have to be integrated into the point of sale. Is that because the point of sale is very immediate and they can immediately come in and, and log Well, it, it can to- systemically prevent them. Okay. They literally can't clock in. So this is what happens at scale. At scale, at a large, you can't say, okay, everybody don't clock in early. Or, you know, if you do, then you're getting more, you know, we're paying you more. Everybody else is making less. Mm -hmm. We have less to go around. And by the way, it's not what we do here. And if you get caught doing it, you know, one morning and then you're gone or whatever, like you can't just communicate that, which a good independent restaurant that has a culture that's built on trust and whose team is going to self-police that they can do that. Well, we started seeing all these competitors doing, why are they doing that? Well, because they have investors and investors are saying you got to grow fast and you got to do integrations and everything's about technology and sales and you can partner with the POS systems and you can share leads and all this stuff. So we're like, Hmm, Okay. So we start building these integrations. Well, what happens when you marry these two systems together? There's always going to be problems. Something's going to happen. Now, if something happens with ScheduleFly right now, like I told you, I text Wes. He's got it fixed in two minutes. Yeah. Tops. Boom. Done. When there's an integration and there's a problem and it's not something that we can fix, oh, it's the point of sale company. What do we have to do? Raise point, a ticket. Yep. Point a finger. Mm-hmm. Raise a ticket. Raise an alarm bell. Blame it on somebody else, which looks shitty, and, yeah. I, and we hate that. Like, you get on a call, and then... Get on a call. There's emails with 14 people, and you're like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, this used to be me and Wes texting each other. Now there's 14 people, including the customer who's pissed, who doesn't carry his fault, and they just fix the damn thing. Yeah, yeah. And we're going, hey, guys, like, you got... You no, know, so no, that the sucked. Oracle train has left... The Oracle email train has left the station. It's fucking horrible. I'm not to pick on Oracle, but I'm sure it's no, empty. it's no, <laughs> totally. It was terrible, and and we were like, that sucks. And uh, and then the POS companies, the, I won't name the ones, but the fast growing cloud based POS companies have big investors with big dollars in these things, and they need big growth fast now. And so their thing is, you want to integrate, you got to give us your customer contact info for sales leads. We're mm. like, no, we're not. So that's a non-starter. Well, then we have this conversation with this C-level executive, I'll say, with a very major brand in in this space whose business is built on integrations. And we're like, yeah, we we really have these problems with integration and particularly the, you know, the the issue when there is a problem, you know, like we we would run into these things and just really bother us. And the guy goes, that's integration. We're like, oh, that's just how it works. You guys don't give a shit. Yeah. We do. So we said, nope, we're not doing integration. Like, okay. We will not do it. We're not going to do it. And what happened is that freed us up to go. Like we always, we always said no, but we're in the back of our minds. We're like, maybe one day, like maybe if it's, you know, everything's cloud-based and these POS systems and it's really easy and you just have an API and it just, maybe. And that's kind of where we got. We're like, no, 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 no. Our instincts were right. That's not what we need to do. And then that led us to just going back to what we were doing and that freed us up to be creative. And so through doing these podcasts, we started hearing all these customers and they were saying, I can't afford health insurance for my team. I can't afford good benefits. You know, it's really hard for me because I have two restaurants and we kept hearing it over and over and over and over. And we were like, 
Well, you don't have any, you don't have any uh, purchasing power. Like you, you've got 40 people at each restaurant. Like yeah. nobody cares, you know, like, Oh, wait a minute. We've got 300,000 people. Oh, interesting. What could we do something with that? I don't know. I spent three hours driving back from Raleigh one time a few weeks ago going, I'm so tired of hearing these restaurant owners on these podcasts tell me they can't afford health insurance. So I called Wes and Tyler. I was like, guys, why don't we try to do something about this? Mm-hmm. Like, we're not like, what, you know, we're not doing integration. Like, what could we do to really make a difference and make a dent with our customers? And like, not just be a software, a scheduling software company, but a company that's re and you know, that does podcasts, but a company that's pushing our chips and invest into their business and make their, yeah, you're almost more, this is a bad term, but I think of it as like a convening authority. Like you're convening 7,200 customers together and like, how do we represent these 7,200 right. customers? Yes. And convening authority is yeah, a good yeah. way to put it. So we said, okay, well, health insurance, wow, that thing's a beast. That'll take forever because there's all this red tape. But we have time. Why don't we start working on that? No problem. In the meantime, what else could we do? Like, what else could we do that where we could find companies that want to invest into this community and that believe that independent restaurants are important or companies that say, 300,000 mostly millennials. Uh, yes, we'd like to provide a discount for our whatever it is. And so we go to our customers and we put the survey out there and we said, here's some things we, we'd like to try to work on for you. Rank them for us. And dude, we put that out two weeks ago. We've got almost 5,000 responses. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. And so that's what we're working on right now is we're working on what we call schedule fly benefits. And we're out there trying to figure out, like we're in conversations with the YMCA because they're in... Basically, they're everywhere, and they're not just in nice parts of town. Like Lifetime mm-hmm. Fitness would be there in tough parts of town too, where a lot of our customers live. Yep. Uh, and if we are able to provide a way for them to, you know, have a place to go exercise and take care of themselves, that's a good thing. We're in conversations with some financial services companies that may want to provide them with access to credit, access to bank accounts. I, I was going to mention, I've got a very good friend who's working for a company called Salary Finance that I think might be one that would be good to partner. So we'll, we'll, pick we'll that talk up about offline. that. Yeah, Let's yeah, do yeah, that yeah, for yeah, sure. Definitely. So what we're doing now is trying to figure out like, cause look, here's the thing, like these restaurants, as I said, I mean, we, this is, this is very genuine that we believe very much that they're a meaningful part of the communities they serve. The, pro, the thing, the challenge we have with these restaurant folks is that there's, there's just, there's so many issues with so many people that work in them. There's a lot of substance abuse. There's mm-hmm. a lot of just, um, they have a hard time finding stability. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them, I had a one, one chef owner who said, look, man, I got like half my staff doesn't even have credit. Like yeah. I have to educate them on like why you should have a credit card, why that matters, why establishing credit will help you now and help you down the road. So we started thinking, we were like, okay, what if we could find somebody that would enable them to get credit at, a, you know, like a low um, spending threshold? Yeah. What if we could find somebody that would help them, you know, God bless how many people are working in restaurants now that have student loans, like significant student loans. Yep. You know, what if, like, but there's companies like SoFi that help them, you know, refinance those loans and get them at a better rate or whatever, extend them out for a longer period. So what if we could find companies that would help them do that? What if we could find companies? It's interesting that, because you're almost moving into aggregator or platform territory where like you're bringing yeah. 
supply and demand that's on, right. on either side. That's exactly that, that's right. That's awesome. Yeah, and if you can... If you can so that's your real scalability play, I've got to imagine, is once you have a big enough network of people, you can become an aggregator, which aggregators are incredibly powerful. Like I think of like a Netflix or Uber or, you know, there's all these companies that bring supply and demand on either side of the equation and they become very powerful. That That's fascinating. Yeah, and I think that, you know, the good thing is we have, uh, like I said, I mean... 5,000 responses. I don't care how large your audience is. That's a lot of people to respond. These people are engaged because they're literally sitting on their phone. I mean, they're going on schedule fly all the time. Yeah. When am I working? They're, they're tri- Cause it's also a communication tool. So they're dialed in constantly. So if you say, look, by the way, like here's one of the things you get, you know, you get this discount at, you know, Zappos for work shoes. I don't know, whatever it yep. is. Like, I mean, anything like that. But if we can provide some things that help them get a little stability, 401k plans being another one, all right, you can take a 401k plan, take some of that money and use that for a down payment for a home. Now there's this path to a little bit of stability. What does that do? It makes them less stressed at work, mm-hmm. less substance abuse, you know, more focused on work. And everybody wins. Everybody the, wins. The, the, the employee, the restaurant, the customer, the community, like that is one of those like big grand sounds crazy visions, but we're going, what, why not? Like yeah. why, why, if not us, like who, like why, why can't we do that? Yeah. So, you that, know, well, that's one of the benefits of a big chain that a big chain has is that they can do things like that. Yes, like they, they can. get buying power. They get, that's, that's right. That's right. So maybe talk a little bit about what you want from the business. Some people start a business wanting to exit it. Others want a lifestyle. And others just want to build a great company. How do you and your partners think about it? Not that you need to speak for them, but maybe maybe yeah. you could just talk a little bit about how you guys think about that. You know, man, I think that we um, we we're trying to we're trying to build a business that you know, if somebody comes along one day, mm-hmm. I guess we'll put it this way: we're not building a standard multiple business. Mm-hmm. There's no three times revenue, you know, standard sort of here. You know, this is the industry like. We are trying to build a business that we love, that we enjoy, that gives us a sense of meaning that is profitable, that pays us well, that allows us to have time with our children. We all, all five of us have young kids. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think 12 kids or something between (laughs) the five of us or whatever. Um, and I've heard it said, if you build a business that you wouldn't mind running forever, you probably won't have to run it forever. <laughs> I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think if you're focused on that and not the end game, yeah. you probably build something that somebody may come along one day and just say, look, let's put it this way. You, you probably, I, I'm going to guess, you know, a lot about Patagonia, Yvonne Schoenart, mm-hmm. you know, Yvonne built this business that he could sell for billions of dollars right now. Yeah. And, and he doesn't, because he doesn't, he likes doing it doesn't want to, yep. but if he got to a point where he's like, ah, you know what, man, I'm, I'm done. Um, he could, he's built a lifestyle, but he started out selling, you know, Patagonia fleece pullovers back in the day or whatever. And now it's this lifestyle brand. We're, we are, uh, I think we're, we're somewhere in that realm of building up, a, a, not just a scheduling software company, but a brand mm-hmm. and hospitality that people admire that they want to be, part of that they want to be associated with what we're doing in our story. Like, I mean, do I have, no, I don't have on a Patagonia hat, but I buy a lot of Patagonia <laughs> stuff because I like what they do and what they stand for. And it means something to me. So I'm, I'm kind of attached to them. And, and I hope that we are in some small way creating that same sense as much as you can with the scheduling software business and restaurants. 
Very cool. So, you know, you talked about the different roles that you and your partners play. Like, is there an overall way that you go about making strategic decisions or is it just <laughs> whoever cares the most about it is kind of who, who makes that decision? <laughs> and I say that half tongue in cheek, but honestly, like, I feel like a well-functioning organization of like five or six or a small number of yeah. roughly equally talented people like whoever cares the most can make this decision doesn't sound that bad to me, but how do you guys go about strategic decisions? Well, okay. <laughs> so Wes and I are like the rah, rah dreamer. Mm-hmm. Why don't we do this is great. We're going to do this. And you know, it's going to be the greatest thing ever. And then Tyler's like, hold on guys. Tyler's pissing in your cornflakes. <laughs> Tyler's a smart guy. Like he's the guy that goes, I hear you. I don't, you know, he like, we've had ideas, like we've done things in the past and he was right. We're like, you know, we try something and he's like, I don't think it'll move the needle, but go, go ahead. Like the great thing about Tyler is he doesn't, he's like, sure guy. As long as we're not doing something stupid. Yeah. You know, that's going to be illegal or immoral. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like don't do stupid shit. Like if it's not stupid, okay. You want to go try that? Like go ahead because the business is fine. You want to go, try to get healthcare, like go right ahead. Like he's all, he's got healthy skepticism, which is good because it balances like the wide eyed optimistic, like we we're going to go do this. You know, like, that's definitely that's me a and good my business. Is, yeah. Is and that's good. Though. Like, you, you, you need that. Though. Yeah. You need that. You need that balance, right? Barbell, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> 90% crazy and 10% like, hold on guys. Like, yeah. So that's, yeah, but that's the strategic decisions, dude. Like, I mean, we're, I'm telling you, man, we're weird. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Uh, six or seven years ago, um, like if you go to our website, schedulefly.com and you get our story about us or whatever we call it. And, uh, there's a picture of the five of us that was taken six or seven years ago in a restaurant down in Wrightsville beach. That is the only time. In 12 years, the five of us have ever been together at the oh, same wow, time. Wow, that's awesome. The, it was the last time Tyler and Wes and I had been together until this summer. We all happened to, Tyler lives in Raleigh. I was in Raleigh. Wes was in Raleigh. Coincidence. And we were like, maybe we should get, get together and have coffee. <laughs> we got together and had coffee. Or maybe have whiskey We talked together. about business for like three minutes and we're like, hey man, like what are you doing for fitness right now? Like, I mean, it's just, that's how we roll. We don't. We don't have meetings. We don't, I mean, it's, it's, I'm talking about simplicity almost to a fault, like not to a fault, but we're so adamant about it. We, we don't want to waste anybody's time. We don't want to have unnecessary meetings, unnecessary bullshit, like strategic documents and plans. It's just like, Hey man, like, you know, it's almost like if it were just like this project that we were working on and it happens to be a really profitable business, but we tinker and we, you know, we run things by each other and then we just roll like, you know. So it sounds like if one of you raises a serious objection, you guys all take it pretty seriously. Like, Hey, we need to talk yeah. about this and yeah, let, uh, we let's, do. let's all agree on whatever it is that we're going to do strategically. We do, but I think we all have enough sense and we're all, we're all wise enough to not come up with something that was just like, that could bring the company down or that yeah. could wreck the company. Like, yeah. You know, some decision, like if we get this wrong, we're screwed. There's no time that we, any of us makes those kinds of decisions. So, so you mentioned, we've talked about raising capital and I was going to ask if you raise any capital along the way 
and I, I even wrote in my notes that I think I know the answer, but you've, you've clearly answered that. But I'm going to pose this question slightly differently. We have a mutual friend who may or may not be sitting here uh, <laughs> who, who once told me in one of his quite successful ventures that a, part, a partner of his and him started and then they eventually sold it. And I remember him telling me that he, and I was surprised when he said this because he was young and brash at the time. Um, but he said something to the effect of, you know, I kind of wish I had an investor because they might have challenged me to think differently, which yeah, I, I get all of your arguments, but yeah. there's also the argument of what if somebody pushing you did make you, <laughs> yeah. you know, push in a way that you might not have done, but it might have been actually better for you. D do you guys ever think about that or? And, and as a follow on, <laughs> like. You, you mentioned that there was a gentleman from First Research. I don't remember his name. Did you guys ever think about raising money from him? Who Because he's not involved in the business, if I recall correctly. Hey, Bobby? Bobby, no. that's it. But, uh, but he's a good friend of all of ours. Because he obviously made some money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> In the no, first I'm sure Bobby, Bobby would have liked to have been early. <laughs> you know, it's funny. Bobby early on was like, he was like, hey, man, you need to, uh, you really should consider putting money into emails and like traditional marketing and all this stuff. And he was kind of getting my head. And I was like, Wes, hon. Wes called me. He goes, leave Will the fuck alone. Just <laughs> let him alone. We don't want your ideas. We're doing it our way. <laughs> like, and, uh, I mean, we will, I like Bobby would laugh about that. And it's true. Um, so, uh, he told me the same thing. Our mutual, our mutual friend. friend. Yes. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a really <laughs> wise way to look at things. Yeah. I think it's a really, um, thoughtful and intentional way to look at things. And I think it's very true for many, many people. Um, in our situation with the three of us, particularly <laughs> somebody like somebody, um, it would have taken, it would have had to be really a very carefully curated mm -hmm. um, per group of people or person that had a very long view that 100% bought into the way we were doing things. But every now and then was like, ah, well, but to be honest with you, that's kind of what Tyler does. Okay. So um, I don't think there's anything anybody would have said. Like Tyler would be, like he would be a great VC guy. Like mm -hmm. he'd be really, really good at it if that's what he wanted to do. So we kind of rely on him for that. I don't think there's anything that some investor would say that he hadn't already thought of, to okay. be honest with you. That's cool. Yeah. Like he, he had a meeting one time with it, like early on with some uh, guy, Tyler's in Raleigh in this VC guy. And he was like, they had lunch and the guy's like, well, what just hypothetical. Just for kicks and giggles, like what if what if we gave you a million dollars? What would you do with it? And Tyler said, "I think that we would split it three ways and just keep doing what we're doing." <laughs> like that's literally the guy's like, "Okay, well, I guess you guys are really not going to have investors, are you?" We like, would have bought a latte machine. <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, you know. So, um, I mean, we don't have offices. We work out of our houses. We, you know, yeah. it's just well, a, with five of you that that's probably pretty manageable. Which is, I. I, I believe that there are 10x humans. I believe that there are humans that are 10 times more valuable 
and I don't mean to make this sound so dehumanizing, but that can get 10 times as much work done as other human beings. Yeah. But I think that the more of them you have on a team, the harder it gets to collaborate. And I could see five being manageable to where you say, right. you know, we just, we can really like all 10 X what we're doing because we don't have these crazy reporting structures and we don't have to, you know, and we trust each other and you know, there, there's a lot of value in that for sure that, yeah. that I could see. Yeah. Do you have any advice to people um, who are thinking about raising money and maybe take the opposite side of what you think? Like if you, would you have advice to people that you think actually need to raise money? Or is that just so different from what you're used to that you don't have any advice? We never raise money at first research and we never raise money at schedule fly. And these yeah. have been really very successful, profitable businesses. But I think that if you're looking to, you know, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with raising money. It depends on some what companies need I to. Mean, right? Yeah, like some people they, have to, especially. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think though, if you, if you, if you, as long as you can avoid it, I think that's good. Yeah. Um, but I've, look, I've also mean, heard that revenue is the is the cheapest source of funding. So, like you guys it, have funded with revenue. Yeah, obviously. I mean, we like could, there is funding. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, one hundred percent. I think that you. If it were me, I would be very, very careful uh, of who I let raise money in my business. I'd make sure that we were perfectly aligned on what the objective was, what the long-term vision was or is. But look, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I can't speak really intelligently about that because I've never seriously entertained that. Yep. I've never been through the process. Um, I feel fortunate to not have had to. I, I think there's a lot of people that have raised money and they've built really successful businesses and they're very happy and they have great, I have friends that have done that and, you know, they would speak very well to that. And, mm -hmm. you know, look, it helped us build this. I mean, they built much bigger businesses than what we've done. So great. That's, yeah. um, but we, that's not your swim lane. Yeah. No, because look, because we're the only investors in the business, we've been able to, um, find a good amount of, of balance in mm -hmm. our lives, which I think is a good thing. Cause I think it's very sustainable. Like I could do this for how many, like you want me to do it for 30 more years. Okay. Like <laughs> no problem. I, you know, there's no, there's a lot to be said for that. There's yeah. no, um, well, I know it sucks now or I'm working a hundred hours a week now, but five years I'm, you know, we're going to exit or uh, there's, there's never been that. I mean, we've been doing it 12 years and, have as much energy and passion for it now as we ever have. Probably more maybe now than ever have. I mean, this schedule fly benefits thing is like, I mean, we're, we're locked in. Like we're freaking jacked about it. And, uh, it's almost like another startup. Yeah. You know, like I'm meeting with the commissioner of insurance for North Carolina sometime soon. And like, I'm, I'm like a freaking, like, I feel like it's our first sale, right? Like, you know, we're, we're starting this new thing and, but the good thing is there's no pressure. Like there's no, like if we don't get this right, we're, we're screwed. It, I, I laugh because I remember that, that first sale that you make, you just remember it. Like, it's, it's so I don't oh, know. Yeah, it's, you do. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's 100%. I, I love that you use that as the kind of measure. So have you done any early uh, stage investing in other companies yourself or have. have you been focused on investing in your own business? I have in a few of them. Yeah. Okay. What, like what types of companies do you try to invest in and what's the nature of that investing? Is it, are, are they raising angel like from other angel, angel. funds? Or, yeah. yeah. I mean, this was all, this was all early on because after we sold first research, I was trying to, 
I did, I kind of took the Taleb approach. Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I'm going to take 90% and just be real conservative. And I'm going to take 10% and just be like, okay, well, if I lose that, it's not a big deal, but maybe there's like a, you know, for those who haven't read NNT, <laughs> that is the barbell approach. Like you, 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 you basically, for lack of a better term, buy options, which are highly risky, but like high payoff. Yeah, the, you know your downside. Your yeah, like yeah. I'm going to lose all the money if I do. I'm probably okay. going to lose all of this money. But <laughs> I could. My upside is unlimited. Yeah. Look, if you haven't read Taleb, I mean, I highly recommend. You know, the black. And what swan do you like better, black swan or anti fragile? It like, depends on which one I'm reading at the time. <laughs> I mean, I've read both of them a lot. I, I, I agree. I think I like anti fragile better, yeah, but I, black swan was so groundbreaking to me. Black right? swan was very groundbreaking, but anti fragile to me is a little bit more. Um, practical, practically like, yeah. applicable. Like yeah. I, 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 it's something I reference in almost every domain mm-hmm. in my life from fitness to diet, to mm-hmm. business, to you name it. Like that's really, really relevant. Black Swan. I get it. But some of that's like, okay, well you can't you know, just, you can't prepare for shit that you can't imagine yeah. it's going to happen. And so just yeah. have some margin and redundancy, you know, whatever, but yeah, he's brilliant. So I would highly recommend reading both of those. Um, if I haven't read Fooled by Randomness, but I hear that's a really good like. Lead it's good, but it's not as it's yeah, not yeah. as uh, it's it's a it's a notch below the other ones. Okay. Like I won't reread Fooled by Randomness. I, I I've read Anti Fragile three or four or five times, and I've read Black Swan that many times, and yeah, I'll keep reading them every year or two, and I'll make <laughs> my kids read them, and you know all that kind of stuff. So, so you've done some early stage investing. What are the biggest mistakes you think founders make when they work with investors? What are the biggest mistakes founders make? Well, that's a good question. I'll, I'll tell you what I think in case Can I have it's some more of that whistle pig? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Thank so, you. So for me, and, and again, because I asked the question, I'll tell you what I think because I'm, I'm a fairly active investor i i think most founders because they're optimists by nature as i am they only report on what's good and nobody gives a flying fuck about yeah what's good with your business agreed so 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 i've i heard this saying that said good news is no news yeah no news is bad news bad news is good news and it's because bad news is actionable. You can actually take bad news and do something with it. So I think that's actually the best news that you can give people. And that's I've really been interesting. I've like been that. advising all of the companies that I've invested in lately. They're like, hey, what would make my investor reports more useful? And I say, well, I think that you need to spend less time on your good news and you need to spend more time on your bad news. And the way that I did that with Level was I mm. had three sections, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if they weren't equal... I knew that I was lying to myself because there's always good news. There's always bad news and there's always ugly news. And I think you need to balance all three, but I'd be curious to hear again. You've, you've, you've seen other founders that that was my experience is that they don't spend enough time on the shit that can actually be fixed. Well, I'm a, yeah. So I'm like a, I mean, I'm a weird investor too, because I bet on three friends, Bobby's one of them. Like Bobby went and built a, basically a competitor to first research okay called vertical iq and because he saw that you know they bought first research and then they didn't do shit with it mm-hmm. like they just let it sit and it's like well all the things that we told them they should do that would make it but you know like the evolution of the product and so he just started another business and now he's now he's 
taking them out and doing really well. Mm-hmm. And, and I just knew, but I was like, I bet on the horse, you know, I, I bet on the jockey, not the horse. Mm-hmm. Um, so the smartest, one of the smartest interviews I've done, not because I interviewed him, but one of the smartest interviewees I ever did was with a guy named Austin Rosenfeld who invests a lot of money. He's built this wildly successful consulting business out of Dallas. Yeah. And um, pays him like seven, eight million a year in profits. Yeah. And he's maybe 40 years old, 41. Um, badass. But then he, he invests all over the place. And I asked him like, what's your number one advice? And he said, bet on the jockey, not the horse. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's been a cons- consistent theme for me is like, how do you bet on the jockey? But what are the jockeys that you want to bet on? Like, what about the jockeys just, makes well, you Well, my thing is the people I know. Like, I know Bob. I was like, I just bet on Bobby. Mm-hmm. Like, that guy's got the passion, the energy, the positivity, the hustle, the drive, the rigor, yeah. the business so savvy. So here's, here's something I'd be curious your thoughts on, but uh, – I don't know if you know Greg Brown, but he runs the Charlotte Angel Fund. Really, really smart guy. I'm not a big fan of angel funds in general, but Greg is is the guy. Like yeah, he's, he's awesome. Yeah. We're very lucky to have him in Charlotte. And he talked about bet on the jockey. But he And I asked him, I said, well, what is it about the jockey that you want to see? And he said, I want them to be stubborn enough to not give up on day one, but I want them to be confident enough to pivot when they need to pivot. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I feel like that balance of like, I'm, I'm not giving up, but also like, I'm not going to close my mind and say that my original idea was the right idea. And I think that's the most impossible thing for somebody to capture. But I do think that that's what I want to see in somebody who I'm going to give my money to. <laughs> well, so Bobby actually wrote a book called the hockey stick principles. Okay. And he did, it was like a much better version than restaurant owners uncorked in the sense that I say better. It was a different version. He went and interviewed a bunch of successful people. Labda from Lending Tree being one yep. of them. Um, I think Sarah Blakely was in it. Like he got a lot of good interviews, but you know, he wrote this book about um, the four different stages of, you know, successful startups. And, and uh, a lot of it was about the, what he calls the blade years, right? Like you think about a hockey stick, right? And so those years where everything's flat and it's lonely and it's hard and you're tinkering and you're pivoting and you're, uh, you're having to stick with it when you're just, you know, there's tough day. I mean, we've all had like, there's days where you're like, what the fuck am I thinking right now? (laughs) Yeah. I I have have those days. So many, I mean, God, I remember sitting in my car and crying outside of blockbuster when I was in LA with first research. Cause I was like, the fuck did I do? I can't sell shit and we're going to fail. And I'm, I'm, you know, going to be the biggest, you know, I left my, my, I left my job and like, what am I doing? And like, I'm sitting here on a, you know, returning. It was when we still have VHS, you know, I'm like (laughs) turn them in. I was like, fuck, I just spent $4 on a damn video and it was late or something like that. And I can't even sell shit and I suck. And I I literally started crying. Like you have those days, but the question is, are those days going to break you or are they going to help you channel your focus and your energy and go, which is what I did. And I said, well, damn it, Will, like you better figure this shit out. Like you don't like figure this shit out, dude. Like there's, there's a, uh, I call this, I've talked about this on anybody that's listening to our podcast has heard me there. They're probably tired of hearing about this, but there's a video and I call it the best three minutes on YouTube. And you may have heard of this guy, Jocko Willink. Do you know Jocko? 430. Huh? Four thirty. Yeah. I follow him on Instagram. Him on Instagram. He, he, he posts. He posts his four thirty watch every morning. I fucking love it. Yep. I think it's one of the best things ever. I, well, <laughs> I, I've been doing that until recently, and I'll tell you why I changed in a second. But Jocko's got this thing. You may have seen it. It's called Good. 
Have you heard the the story he tells yeah. about? So just a real quick version is, you know, for those of you listening, if you haven't seen this, he he was a Navy SEAL and he was a commander and he would have a, guys come to him and they would present their problems. And then a guy that came to him one day and he's like, Jocko, we got this problem and I already know what you're going to say. And Jocko goes, well, what am I going to say? He goes, well, you're going to say good. Mm-hmm. And uh, he goes, you, ever, you always say good when there's a problem. And Jocko said, yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it, what we would say is every time there was something like, okay, we, uh, we're not going to get this new equipment that we were supposed to get this good. That helps us stay light and nimble. You know, we're not going to get this uh, mission we were going to be deployed on. We're not going to get that. So else is get good, more time to prepare for the next mission. So he would take every problem and figure out what's good about it. to your point about like, what's the ugly shit. Yeah. That's actually the stuff like it's I've actually, that, I tell you, man, I came yeah. across that earlier this year. And I, I mean, like without sounding like overblown, it really in some ways changed my life in the sense that it was one of those moments where I went, I kind of, inherently thought sort of like that subconsciously, but that crystallized it so much where I, every single time there's a problem now, my first response is good. Okay. And now what are we going to do with that? I've made my kids watch it. I've talked to the family about it. We talk about it. It's scheduled. Like it's, it's such a great way to look at Mm -hmm. problems. Like this is, this is a bad thing supposedly, but good we can turn this into something really meaningful. This gives us an opportunity to get better or to grow or whatever. Once again, anti-fragility, right? Yep. Big stressor, boom, hard thing, bad, tough thing. What do you do? Are you fragile? You know, do you break or do you grow because of it yep. get better? That's what you know, anti-fragility is all about. That's so, awesome. Yeah. No, and I'll, I'll link to Jocko's um, uh, Instagram feed in the show notes because I do I, I keep hearing about this guy who just posts pictures of his watch at 4:30 in the morning and it sounds silly but it's so motivating it's when like you, <laughs> like this dude is literally up right now doing burpees at 4:32 and he's got his watch and then the, the comments like now or go for it or yeah, yeah. Get it. so I, I actually like a couple months ago I started doing that I was like fuck yeah dude I, like I was like you I'm like I'm inspired so I started getting up at 4:30. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, this is great, man. I've got all this time to myself and my kids are, you know, yeah. nobody else is getting up till six 30. And then I was like, yeah, but the problem is Jocko goes to bed at like eight or eight 30. And I was yeah. going to bed at 11 and I was no, like, 11 doesn't work for this is, is like not sustainable. So I just said, you know, finally about a week ago, I said, fuck that. But I, I, I am inspired by him. And I, I think that, you know, that's a great way to, yeah. To look at stuff. I think and you no have what, to have that. If you're going to yeah. be, a, you have to deal with things that way. If you're going to be a successful startup founder, man, you better be ready for some bad shit to happen. You didn't plan for. And if yeah. you let it break, you do that's, that's it. Like you're done. But if you go good, this, this, this is good feedback. This is going to help me get better. Yep. Then uh, you will. No, I agree. And what, what I take from that is it, it's the reason I go to, I, I work out every morning at now at my new gym at 6am it's because I have to prioritize certain things. And for me personally, I need to go get a workout in. And you can't take it from me because nobody's calling me at 6 in the morning. So that's when I go work out. And yep. that's why I love what Jocko's doing because it's like I'm committed to me first. So I'm going to do what I need to do for me. Yeah. And then other things are going to happen after that. But this is the first thing that I'm committed to. And I tell people like you, you need to prioritize whether it's your family or your health or your fitness or whatever it is like you need to prioritize that. Whatever that is, put that first and do that first in the day. And <laughs> you know what, man? I think that there's like I used to look at that and be like, oh, well, 
you know, if you're starting, a, you should just be working all the time. And who has to, I tell you what, man, that's not sustainable. I mean, like, I don't know how Elon Musk does it or whatever and sleeps under the desk and all that shit and works 20 hours a day. And yeah. if you're not Elon, man, like you should probably find time to yeah. exercise, yeah. to be outside and get sun and fresh air and yeah. eat well. Like, cause those things help you. They, they give you the foundation. You can't be a superhuman without those. Yeah, 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 that you need. Like, I think those things are massively important. And I've realized that as I've gotten older, that the time I invest in that pays off in terms of my uh, endurance with my profession, my creativity, mm-hmm. you know, my just the ability to keep going after it every day yeah. really hard. And I work in... You know, I work in bursts. Like I get a lot done in a really short amount of time. Yep. Again, I mean, not to, but it's but that's the, that's even going back to J.P. Morgan, one of the original superhumans. Like that was he he would work for two hours and get his work done, and then he'd go to sleep and yeah. take a nap. But like, you but you you need the, the funny. <laughs> but he get more done in two hours than most humans would get done in three. Yeah, because years. we're on this <laughs> stupid factory system. Like yeah. nine to five is like for robots. Yep. Like I mean, we did that, you know, for manufacturing back in the day or whatever, and like that's not where we are right now. Like, yeah. I mean, like if you're in a creative job or you're in software, or you're in something that, you know, where you can use leverage to your advantage, I, you know, that you when, need when, to, if, if to you can that. get into a flow state, I think like you, like uh, if you're in a, a profession that has a flow state, a flow state is the most amazing thing you can ever get into and you won't stop a flow state. So I'm, I'm sure that JP Morgan would work for 30 hours in a flow state, but the minute the flow state stops, and that's where I am now. Like, yes. I, if I'm not flowing, I'm leaving. Like, I don't need to put in time in your office. Like, I, like I'm doing it right it's now. Just a, it's just <laughs> wasted time, and it's yeah. actually it's actually it's actually hurting you more than it's helping you. I think exactly. You if you're not in flow, I totally agree with you. Exactly. Well, I don't want to keep you too much longer, Will, because this has been awesome, and and I know it's getting late. But how involved are you in the local Charlotte uh, startup <laughs> community? <laughs> I'm not, man. I'm so disconnected. Like, I, I really. Um, I thought about that early on and I started making some efforts, but to be honest, I've gotten, um, what is the guy's name? Oh, Derek Sivers. You know, Derek Sivers. I don't know Derek Sivers. Um, I think Ferris interviewed him years ago. He, Derek Sivers had this blog post that he wrote, um, that was called hell yes or no. Okay. And it was how he learned to make decisions. And I really latched on to that, which is any because he was a startup guy and he was a founder and he was running this, you know, <clears throat> business that was taking a lot of time and energy, he started realizing like as soon as you you know, when you're doing that and you're getting all these opportunities, it's like death by a thousand cuts. You know, like that's you know, exactly where I am right now in my like startup community journey, by the way. Like so. it's really hard because <laughs> you get all the and you want to say yes, but then he uh he realized like if i if my response to something isn't hell yet like when Chris, when Christoph said okay i you know my buddy john he does his podcast i was like hell yeah dude i'll do that that was that was my immediate response so yeah. i was like i'll do it if the response isn't hell yes and the answer is no there's no in between there's yeah. no like let me think as soon as you're like let me think about it the answer should be no yeah because that's your that's something inside going hey man like 
I already know the answer to this. Like, yeah, you, yeah. yeah, because you've got a lot going on, and if you overcommit, then you're going to get stressed out, and you're you're going to underperform at all these different things you're trying to do, and then you're going to get, you know, no. So I just realized years ago, I was like, okay, schedule fly, family, fitness, friends are all hell yes. Everything else, unless it's something, you know, it's a no. Like, I just, yeah, I had to. Like, I had to make that commitment to myself to, you know, focus on the things that I cared the most about. So I'm not connected at all at all. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that you shouldn't, I'm saying that for me, that was a decision. I just, I I think that's a very mature answer. Like for me, I've overcommitted to the Charlotte startup community and now like, yeah, but you got this badass podcast out. Like this (laughs) is a good thing, right? Like you're like, and I appreciate the opportunity and I I feel very fortunate to have this chance to do, to do this. I think what you're doing is like, you're taking you again, I mean, you're, this is a point of leverage, right? Like you're taking stories and you're sharing those stories and you're, you're connecting yourself with a lot of people. So it's a good, it's a good investment. Yeah, no. And, and, and I think it, I think in the long run it is, I think where I've probably misunderstood what I'm committing to is on the investing scene. And I've, I've put a lot of money into a lot of companies and I'm at the point now where there's companies that come to me that I would like to invest in, but I can't because I've so committed and I just haven't really appreciated what a finite resource money is. Um, money and time, dude. Yeah, money I mean, and time. And that's the thing. Like I start to wonder, like, do I need to go raise money? Cause I always thought that I could fund it with my own money. I clearly can't like there's way more companies that I want to fund than what I can afford to fund. And so maybe I need to go raise money. And it, it, it's been an interesting, I, I, I don't know if most VCs start that way, but that's where I feel like the direction I'm going is. But I don't know that it's just a money question. It's also like, a, how do I spend time? How do I build a team that can support all of these different companies? And uh, it, I mean, I'm not complaining. I think it's actually awesome. Like, I think I've found my next calling, but it just may be very different than what I thought it was initially. (laughs) Yeah. I learned to say no from Wes. I I really, in that specific, I need to meet Wes. He sounds pretty fucking awesome. Badass dude. You should (laughs) like Wes is down there in Wilmington. He has a, he knows what he wants to do. He's got two kids, awesome kids. Are you guys involved at all down there with Encino or that whole family of the, 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 um, wild Oak, uh, banking. Oh, live Oak, live Oak. That's it. Yeah. yeah, Live Oak. Well, that's interesting. You asked that. Yeah. So live Oak, live Oaks is for those that don't know live Oak bank. You can go to their site. I mean, they're a very fast growing, successful bank that has taken a it's funny because it's a unicorn bank, right? Like they're worth a billion dollars. Yeah. And well, what did they do? They went out and they said, okay, these are the verticals. These are the industries that have, if you go to look at their SBA loans, they have, you know, these are the top 30 or whatever it is. Industries that don't default. They they focused initially on commercial loan origination, if I'm not mistaken. That's what they did. And they did it by industry. They looked, they literally looked at the SBA, SBA loan data Mm -hmm. and they went, okay, what are the industries where there's a very low default rate? Let's go lend to them. Let's mm-hmm. go become experts on those industries. And this is literally what first research. It's funny because Bobby was like adamant. Like he was trying to for years preach to banks. Like this is what you should do. 
Like you should go become yeah. experts in certain industries and just crush it. That's what they did. So they've got like 30 verticals, you know, from, uh, well, <laughs> where this comes to the whole comes full circle. So we're actually going to be meeting with them soon because one of the industries or a couple of the industries that they focus on, they focus on craft breweries and distilleries. They focus on wineries and they focus on boutique hotels. All right. Okay. These are like three of their like 30 verticals that they focus on like veterinarians or dentists or whatever it is. And uh, so they just went all the other industries, like forget them. Like we're just going to lend to these hmm. and we're going to be really good at it. We're going to be experts at their industry and we're going to talk their language and we're going to know what products and services they need. And we're going to be just the best at those industries. Well, we went to them and we were like, Hey guys, we've got like 500, uh, breweries, distilleries, wineries, and hotels combined. Uh, would you like to, you know, figure out a way to get to them easily because they have our trust and they're like, uh, yeah. Well, and ironically, Bobby made the introduction to the president of the bank, Neil Underwood. And so we had this conference call scheduled a week ago and then they were like, oh, we got to reschedule. Then it was supposed to be this Friday and they rescheduled. And I told Wes, they just did that today. I was like, you know what? Next time they reschedule, we're going to say thanks, but no thanks because we don't have to do this, but yeah, yeah. we're trying to find companies. That, but the thing about them is they, uh, they built a really, really successful bank by having that, that laser focus. And well, I don't know how much you know about their other businesses, but they created their loan origination software on salesforce.com. Yeah. And they spun that out and it became Encino. And Encino is now a billion-dollar company. And then they spun out um, a company called Canopy. Canopy. That's yeah, their investment yeah, yeah. arm. Yeah. And they've made a billion dollars doing that. So they're one of those rare, like, it's trifectas. Freaking of, crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, they had the Canopy was on the emails. And actually, Wes asked me, he's like, why is Canopy on this? I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what Canopy is. And I looked at it. I was like, holy shit. They probably think yeah, they invest in FedTax. Yeah. And I emailed. I was like, guys, we're not looking for that. Like, we just want you to, yeah, yeah. you know, connect you. But anyway, yeah. Amazing business. So, no, I don't think, you know, Wes is, Wes fly fishes and he takes great care of his family. He spends a shitload of time with his kids and his wonderful wife and uh, is not real dialed in. Although I think he's starting to get to a point where he might want to, because frankly, I mean, you know, there's not, I mean, not that Wes doesn't do it. He does a lot, but I mean, we're not sitting here. He's not sitting there constantly adding shit. Yeah. And that was to the point is that like, I learned from Wes to say, no, it was really important. Steve jobs did that too. Like, you know, a thousand no's are better than a yes. Like yeah. you got to, you got to say no, because if you do, then the time you say yes, it becomes really meaningful. But like with software, particularly, you can you can say, I mean, dude, we get suggestions all day long. I wrote a post a year ago. I was like, we get every week we get all these suggestions for schedule fly. And if we did, like, let's say we got 10 suggestions a week and we added one thing, one a week, that's 50. Let's say we did it and we took two weeks off. 50 things we would add in a year and 250 things we would add in five years. What would happen to that simple software? It becomes complicated. Yeah. So you have to say no a lot. It'd be like, okay with that. And if somebody says, well, you don't have what we need anymore, then you go, that's okay. There's other people. You got to be okay with just being like, go yeah. ahead. Move on. Move yeah. on. Yeah. So saying no is a big thing. It's hard. I didn't use, I was terrible at it and I've learned from Wes and I've gotten a lot better at it. It's not my natural instinct, but 
I think it's a good thing. I read a really good book recently um, called Never Split the Difference. It's the best book on negotiating I've ever read. And I, I paid, I don't know, $120,000 to go to Duke, and they taught us about BATNA and all kinds of bullshit that doesn't have anything to do with real negotiations. Um, and this was like literally a guy who negotiated for the FBI. Who His point was, oh, oh yes. Yeah, yeah. He, he's like, I if, heard him if, on a podcast. Yeah. It's fucking awesome. He's that like, if you and your wife disagree on whether you should wear brown or black shoes and your compromise is I'm going to wear a blue, a brown shoe on the left and a black on the right, you both <laughs> fucking lose. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, 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 and he also said even further, he was like, um, if you're negotiating for someone's life and they kill the person, like th there's no win. Like you have yeah. to get this person back home safely. And that's the only way you win. So you can't split the difference. You have to fucking decide what you want and you have to get it. And, uh, and, and he gave some really good guidelines on how to get there. Um, he was on either Ferris or Rogan? He was probably on both. He was awesome. It was great. Yeah. I remember listening to that guy. It was really good. And I have a friend that read the book like you and loved it. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's and, and, and I don't even remember this specific point, but I just remember that, like, I, I, I think that there are t tactics to negotiating that if we follow them, like, we, we don't have to, like, pay attention to what people normally say. Like, I think you can actually, like, negotiate and not win, but like create a situation that everybody agrees. Like this is where we should be going. Like we should agree that this is how I'm going to, 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 to win. So, yeah. Yeah. You got to be willing to walk away though. And you have yeah. to be willing to be, you know, getting an uncomfortable situation. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Well, look, Will, this, this has been great. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your time and, and thoughts with us. Uh, before I let you get out of here, is there anything else you would like to, to cover? Uh, no, man. I don't, this has been fun. I've enjoyed Okay, I'll, I'll tell you what. You're, you're a whiskey guy. <laughs> are, you a, uh, are you a bourbon guy? Are you, are you just general whiskey? I love bourbon. We're yeah. Okay, you like bourbon. I what's, love bourbon. Okay. What do you what's your favorite bourbon? Ooh. Uh you noticed that I was out of Blanton's today. That's probably my favorite. Blanton's is fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. Buffalo Trace? I like Buffalo Trace a lot. Yes. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. That's a good one. I got another bottle of that coming too. I'm out of it, but So yeah. I, the last time I got that, I went to get it for a friend for his birthday, and I went into the ABC store and I was like, Do you guys have Buffalo Trace? And the guy's like, You like Buffalo Trace? I was like, yeah. He goes, so you've had it before you, I was like, yeah, dude, I like, I like Buffalo. It's really good. He goes, hold on. He goes in the back and he brings it back out and he's like, look, I don't put it on the shelves because it's hard to get. And I don't want somebody randomly. That's how I always get it. Yeah. Like, I always get it from someone like that. Um, so, so, so I have a friend, uh, Brian Bellamy, who's been on this podcast before. Yeah. And he's got a family friend who owns, um, a, an ABC store in South Carolina oh. and yeah, they, they may or may not allow their friend to have preference to early That's access. Awesome. <laughs> really? Have you had some, have you had Japanese whiskey? Have you had any of that? I have. And I, 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 
I think it's awesome. I, just like I love their denim and I love their steak and I love their fish. But yes, I have. <laughs> N- Nika Takatsura, have you ever had I have that? not had that, no. Looking good. That's good stuff. Very uh, cool. Yeah, they make some good whiskey. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, look, brother, it was awesome catching up with you. I have to thank Christoph whenever I see him again for <laughs> introducing us. <laughs> but look, best of luck to Schedulefly. I, I love what you guys are doing. I, I think that companies like yourselves who can figure out how to connect a whole bunch of um, suppliers, which are restaurants, to a whole bunch of employees, I think those are the best kind of businesses in the world. And I just wish... Uh, Wish the best of luck to you guys. And uh, I would love to meet uh, Wes and Tyler. They sound like amazing human beings. You'll never get Tyler here. You may, you know, Wes has got some, fa- his, his in-laws are here. So maybe one time when he's here, he'll, he, I mean, he, he, you love Wes. He's great. Tyler's, Tyler's, you know, he's, he's doing, he's just not going to do he's it. I get he's, it. No, he's not going to come. He's not going to talk. He, if he did, it would be like, really short answers and really smart answers and like why the fuck are you guys sitting around drinking whiskey talking about this shit it's like real simple just fucking you know do the things that you (laughs) think are right and that's it so anyway uh, i appreciate it this is fun i always uh, this is a lot of fun i love telling the story as everybody does you know it's fun to share your story it's fun to talk about it no no it's great hearing about schedule fly and congratulations on all the success and here's to uh future success cheers man cheers brother yeah absolutely all right (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.